Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny autumn day here in the capital is Alison McNulty. Alison is the CEO of Tiny Life, a charity based in Northern Ireland, which supports the families of babies born prematurely and or with illness. Uh, Alison, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a lovely opportunity to join you this morning. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves, Alice, and certainly is a very nice day for it as well. Um, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But how has it affected you and your organisation and what you're doing? Well, as a small charity based in Northern Ireland, um, it has been a roller coaster of a ride. Um, back in March, which seems uh, a long time ago, our world literally on the 12th of March stopped in the sense that as an organisation, we are heavily reliant on fundraising. And that stopped overnight with the, um, with the Chancellor's announcement. So the first thing that we had to do was to move to close the office and to get our staff working remotely. We were also in survival mode. As someone who heavily relies on fundraising, we wondered, would we get through the coming weeks and months ahead? Even with a very good uh, cash reserve, we were wondering what this journey would take us on. So we moved quickly in terms of our staff team to, um, to do two things. Firstly, with the Chancellor's announcement of the work retention scheme, we furloughed all of our fundraising staff and our admin staff. And then our service delivery staff, our face-to-face family support officers, we had to move our model, which was working in the neonatal unit, in family homes and in communities, onto an online platform. In a sense, we were very lucky. We had just undertaken an organisational review which had begun, uh, we had begun to have that conversation about a digital platform. And at that point, we had some, it's hard to say that we had some resistance for staff. We weren't well equipped to deal with it. And we had a journey to take. But within a matter of days, if not weeks, we established that digital platform, which was meeting the needs of our families, our most vulnerable clients and supporting the broader neonatal network across Northern Ireland. At times, I feel that I had landed in a new and strange country with a new language to learn. So the word COVID, coronavirus, work retention schemes, furlough, having to get to grips with all that, mm. to uh, risk assess in a different way, to, um, to be a leader to your staff who were anxious, uncertain of the future and asking them to do new and different things while keeping them motivated was at times challenging and difficult. And that need for connectedness 
and to decipher what was going on in the wider world and make it work well for Tiny Life, I have to say, was at times, particularly in the early days, quite challenging. Mm. Those challenges have changed over time, and I'm sure we will touch on those as we go through the interview. You make a really good point there that leaders have really had to step up and be there to inspire and reassure the people that work for them, just keep them motivated during a time like this. And that brings its own challenges. Having to do it all remotely, however, how has it been sort of getting used to leading from a distance? And is it something that you can see yourself persisting with just because of the fact that this could be going on for quite some time? Um, In a sense, Scott, because I travel so much with work, the need to stay connected to my team and lead from a distance has always been part of my role as I travel throughout Europe, etc. But this COVID added additional pressures because not only was I travelling and leaving the staff in the office or out and about in the community, they then were all either working remotely or on furlough at home. So in a sense, communication and connectedness was more important. So in the early days, we moved to having a collective Zoom meeting every morning to keep all staff, whether they were furloughed or not, up to date on progress, up to date on what the latest developments were, and allowing them time to ask questions. Um, and we also had to introduce an element of fun into it to motivate people to keep them engaged. Those interactions that they normally would have had in the office over a cup of coffee or at lunchtime or even passing a room simply weren't there. So we encouraged our furlough staff to mm-hmm. take a lead on that. And if I say to you, I dressed up as Madonna one morning at 9.30 using black bin bags <laughs> while my team were dressed up as something, the Karate Kid and Thelma and Louise, etc. Um, you know, those things were as equally as important I think, for staff yeah, right, to do that right. as, 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 um, as the kind of the fundamental serious things around jobs, retention, salary, income generation, fundraising, where we were at, you know. And to be open and transparent with the team um, was important. Things like um, sending them little care packages so that they felt connected, that you were listening to them, that they weren't jaded. Um, those are the kinds of things that I did as a leader to to stay in touch with my team. In a sense, it was great. Working from home, I got more done, but I tended to spend my life on a screen. Um, while I was more connected I was devolving more responsibility because there was so much to do so quickly so my senior management team were fantastic they were leading their own teams but we were equally equally asking staff when they were in their own homes to almost be their own little mini team of their own um, without that same everyday everyday connectedness to the organisation so, so to implement the changes themselves quite quickly and reach out and ask for help when they needed it but otherwise to be able to get on with things in a way that supported our clients. It's just about being able to break down the social isolation element, isn't it, when everybody is working from a distance, uh, because the uh, the human interaction is one of the big arguments for keeping office premises in place and not having everybody work remotely, because it is so mental um, mentally beneficial. With the arguments on both sides for either reverting back to the typical office environment post-COVID or sticking to remote working. Can you see the office ever returning in vogue as it used to be? Or do you think that more and more people will be working from home on a personal basis in future? 
I can speak for ourselves. Um, we have already made a decision that we will not be opening our huge family centre stroke office again to the capacity that it was, that we will use a number of small rooms with staff almost booking in by appointment to be in the office, that we will be utilising other venues to have staff meetings in the future where, where we can socially distance appropriately because to retain that face-to-face element of our work. But primarily going forward in terms of cost um, and usefulness of having that huge space, we have taken a decision that we will continue with remote working as far as possible when it is appropriate. That's very interesting going forward. And um, I do certainly wish you all the luck in the world in making sure that that pans out um, all right for sure, um, Alison. Um, just just for those people out there that are probably sort of among the younger generation, especially sat and thinking and looking at the COVID-19 situation, the impact that it's had on the economy and the impact it's having on their employment prospects. Um, as a leader in your profession, what message would you have to give them to really get them to pick their heads up and get back on the road to success? It's interesting. I was at a leadership conference um, about three weeks ago, and one of the leading um, one of the leading lights here in Northern Ireland, and one of the big companies, was talking about the future. And I have to say, I felt quite old and jaded by some of it because it's those younger people with the um, technological skills, the um, opportunities that they've been afforded using um, social media, Zoom, and that world which will adapt much quicker and we will become reliant on. So I can see the workforce changing in the future where our leaders will be those who have those skills and knowledge that we need to drive business forward. And those will tend to be younger and more flexible um, in their approaches. So if you're young and you're out there at the moment, I would say that there will be real opportunities for you to develop your career and almost fast forward it in a way that perhaps I didn't have when I was your age. Um, You will have skills that your elders, your bosses won't have and become more reliant on. And so therefore, hang fire at the moment because we're going to enter into a a new world where technology um, will be so much more important than it has been. Now, unfortunately, Alison, our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do wrap things up, I would like to talk about the future because we know that we're going to be in this for at least some months yet, given Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement two weeks ago. Um, but over that period of time, as we're hoping to get to grips with the uh, the new normal, what is it that you at Tiny Life are really hoping to achieve going forward? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being in a year's time, hopefully by which point we will have a working vaccine in place? I think the challenge for myself and for Tiny Life is income generation. Having been an organisation that was heavily reliant on traditional fundraising, we need to um, adapt and cope with the ways that we attract funds into the organisation to get a better balance in terms of where our funding comes from. And then on the other side, we need to, we are already looking at a hybrid model of support for our clients that reflects their needs. So we've already done some work with our clients around a parent survey about what has worked 
and what they would like us to see going forward. And I see our model being a balance between that face-to-face, working with our vulnerable clients, but also in using technology to reach out and to support more vulnerable families than we ever have done before because of maybe their geographic location, their family commitments, etc. So looking at those opportunities um, to develop our services in ways that we hadn't done before. I think it is uncertain times, but I think we have to keep positive. We have to keep um, ahead of the game as such because there will be many small charities who will not survive that. And my goal is that Tiny Life is one of those charities that is still standing when we get to probably next September or October when we have a vaccine in place and are able to go back to what they're calling the new norm. So it's keeping positive at the moment, keeping staff engaged and providing a worthwhile service for our clients. And that positivity is infectious and the spirit that you've shown so far to get through to this point, Alison, I'm sure is going to hold you in very, very good stead to uh, make those aims a reality. And I actually think just given how wonderful it's been having you join us on the programme today, it would be fantastic at some point in the next 12 months to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along. And hopefully there will be some positive news to share. I would welcome that opportunity, Scott, to share with you where we are at in our journey at that point. And hopefully we'll have good news to share with you uh, over the next 12 months. I would certainly hope so. It's been such a pleasure, Alison, welcoming you onto our programme today. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world. And I would extend that to everybody at Tiny Life and everyone that benefits from your services. Thank you. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning into this today. Please do remember to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Tiny Life CEO Alison McNulty onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, having been elevated to the Upper House of Parliament in in August 2015, and he enjoyed a distinguished political career prior to that, despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, and occupying a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain 
historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country 
that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, 
experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.